0: Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.
1: Welcome back to the Theater Podcast, intimate personal conversations with theater's biggest names. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and this interview today is with Michael Riedel, who, if you don't know about him, He's a legend in the journalistic capacity within the Broadway and theater community. He's had a column and written reviews and done criticisms of shows for over 20 years. And the Riedel column has been looked forward to by many for a long, long time. His answer actually really surprised me when I asked him about uh, being a a journalist and a critic and still having these great relationships with amazing, amazing people. Like how do people trust him if they're just going to, Tell their stories to him, and he's going to go out and publish them. And he was saying that his unique style of reporting is is basically transparent for his guests, and he's honest while not pulling any punches. So he'll call them up and he'll say hey i'm I'm talking about this, subject ABC. What do you think about it?" And here's your chance to tell your side of it. And he doesn't pull any bait and switch. He just tells people exactly what he's going to write about. And then he does it. So he sticks by his own code of ethics, which is very admirable. He has a global perspective on Broadway, especially from the creative side. That's just so fascinating to me. I always love how things are put together and how a show comes to be. And he's just got decades of being besties with all of these creatives and divas and stars and everything. And he knows the insides of feuds and why producers like to work with each other and why they don't. And it's just fascinating. His new book, Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, tells all about a lot of this. It starts with Sunset Boulevard and transitions into Rent, which if you've been following any of Broadway history, was kind of a turning point in the way that Broadway did shows because it was sort of the end of the British invasion with the Andrew Lloyd Webber shows and the Cameron Mackintosh shows. And it started out with this American that nobody knew of that was writing the show. Nobody heard of Jonathan Larson. The show is capitalized for $100,000, which is way less than Phantom or Cats or Les Mis or anything else of that nature that had been traditional Broadway at the time. And the story he tells, the way he tells the story, it's just fascinating. So check the show notes, get the book. There's an audio version that's going to be coming out soon as well. Do not wait. As always, before we get into it, I'll switch this up a little bit. Leave me a rating first. Leave a review. Then go over to Instagram and Twitter. Follow me at theater underscore podcast or on facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Please help support the podcast. Help keep it going. Get Keep the, keep the transcriptions going at ttp.fm slash patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And now everybody, please enjoy this episode with Michael Riedel. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? My guest today is an American theater critic, broadcaster, and columnist. He's the co-host of Len Berman and Michael Riedel in the Morning on 710 WOR in New York City, weekdays from 6 to 10 a.m. But he's been a controversial yet very influential Broadway columnist in the New York Post for over 20 years. His next book, Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, released today, November 10th, 2020, which is the follow-up to his 2016 book, Razzle Dazzle, The Battle for Broadway. Michael Riedel, welcome to the Theater podcast. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, Alan. What's going on? Oh, you know, uh, we're actually recording this uh, day after day after uh, election day, so November fourth. So energy's a little weird. And I, I wanted, without getting into politics and all this, I wanna, I wanna get into um, your book right away because the title, singular sensation, the triumph of Broadway. It it seems very apropos because we're in the middle of a pandemic where Broadway is shut down, and we don't know the future of Broadway, but did the title come before the pandemic, or what what was the sequencing
0: there? Well, I never never intended the uh, subtitle, The Triumph of Broadway, to be ironic, but it turned out that way. I mean, the idea for the book was I wanted to uh, write about the 90s on Broadway, which was a very important decade in the history of the American theater because it was the time when Broadway went from being still kind of in the backwaters of the entertainment business to becoming really, once again, part of a mainstream American popular culture with such shows as uh, Rent, Chicago, Angels in America, The Lion King, and The Producers. Those shows at the time were as well-known, as famous, as popular as any TV show or movie of that era. And it really showed you that Broadway was back in business in a big, big way. And I was trying to figure out, well... All right, so I can build Broadway up through the '90s. Where do I end it? And then, of course, the obvious ending. Really, it occurred to me. I uh, was looking at my window one day, and I thought, you know, once upon a time, I used to look out my window down here in the West Village, and I would see the World Trade Center. And in fact, I saw the uh, planes fly into the Trade Center, and I saw the Trade Center collapse. Wow! And I watched Broadway really, really rally uh, for the sake of the city and come back and come back in a a really moving. But vigorous uh, way, and I thought, you know what? That's where I end the book. I show just at Broadway's at its height, and then boom! What we thought was the existential crisis. And remember, I mean, I was around back then. We had no idea if Broadway was ever going to be able to open again. We had no idea what was going on in the city. You know, I mean, we didn't know there there could have been more terrorists here. Broadway, uh, the time Times Square was on Rudy Giuliani than than the mayor what he was saying uh, <laughs> his uh, top ten list of uh, terrorist targets. Uh, in Moscow, a uh, year before, terrorists had uh, taken over a theater and killed 200 people in the theater. So there was real, real fear about the survival of the theater in the city, and and frankly, the survival of the city. We just did not know what was going to happen back then. But you know, two days after ap- two days after uh, the attack on the World Trade Center, September 13th, after Giuliani called all the Broadway producers and said, "You guys got to go on. The show has to go on." on Thursday night to show the world that New York will not be brought to its knees. And God love theater people, they pulled it together and they got that show up and I was with, uh, I went to see the producers that night with Mel Brooks and Ann Bancroft and we stood at the back of the house. And it was maybe half full, you know, people were were scared. Uh, It was the hottest show in the world right then. We stood at the back of the house and in the beginning it was a little tentative, but then the laughs started to come and they got bigger and they got bigger and then at the end of the show Matthew Broderick and Nathan Lane they led you know half a, half a full theater of the St James singing God Bless America through tears and through a combination of strategies that i outline in the book that i show in the book broadway was in 9 months from the attack on the world trade center broadway was back to posting record grosses so that's why i called it the triumph of broadway because at this moment where we really thought and you know you probably are too young to have lived through it but it's easy to say right now that, oh, yeah, we recovered from 9-11 so quickly. That was not the perception that we had, those of us who lived through it. We did not know where the city or where this business was headed at that time. We just did not know. But Broadway rallied and Broadway came back and showed the world that New York could not be brought to its knees. So I finished the book in February. It turned into a manuscript of Simon and & Schuster, and I went on a skiing vacation. And uh, I was in Zermatt, Switzerland, and one day it was beautiful, and I... Skied over the mountaintop right at the foot of the Matterhorn into Italy, skied through Italy, had a wonderful day, Uh, stopped and had lunch and a glass of wine. And I took a picture of my wine glass with a Matterhorn in the background and I sent it to my girlfriend and she said, where are you? And I said, I'm in Italy. She said, do you have any clue what's going on? <laughs> frankly, I had not because I was skiing and I was on holiday. I mean, you know, I was not paying too much attention. I was more interested who was, was going to be Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden, who was going to win the Democratic uh, uh, primary then. And she said, there's this coronavirus thing, which I was vaguely aware of, frankly. She said, and it's it's breaking out all over Italy. And two days after I got back from Shravinia where I was skiing, they shut down the ski resort that I was in because they had an outbreak of the coronavirus. Wow. I came back to New York the second week of March, and all of Broadway shut down. And I thought, oh my God, I've just written this book, Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway, and Broadway shutting down. We thought when it was shutting down, it was going to shut down for two weeks. I remember talking to a whole bunch of producers, and they said, it's going to be two weeks. We'll sort it out. Two weeks, we'll be back. Well, Yeah, I, re- I remember that. Eight months later, we're not back. So I thought, well, what do I do? I mean, I can't throw up the whole scheme of the book. I can't tack on a COVID-19 ending. That seems a little fake. So I talked to my editor at Simon & Schuster and said, look, just write it forward. That kind of puts things in context. So that's what I did. I mean, basically what I told you, the idea for the book was that Broadway was big and survived this existential crisis, and now it's facing its new one. And frankly, right now, we have no idea what the end is going to look like for this new crisis that Broadway has faced.
1: Yeah. There's a level of, of awareness and communication and um, the straight up technology advancements, obviously that we have now that we didn't have before. And now because it has been going on for so long, it's the new normal people are writing performances for zoom. You know, there's radio plays in podcast form, of course, coming out recorded, written entirely in, in quarantine. And, I think, you know, one of the silver linings to all of this is that it's forcing theater owners and producers to upgrade local systems, right? So you, you hear all these conversations about HVAC systems being upgraded and, and the theaters being, uh, uh, you know, figuring out ways to get pe- more people in safely, which is great because, you know, the running joke of, of you know, serious uh, Broadway performances is that their allergies always kick in with the mold in the theater, right? You know, when they're working, they have all mold problems. So hopefully all that gets fixed. But um, with all that aside, though... I I mean I moved to the city in 2007, and what got me into theater is, was Rent, and that's why I love basically in Singular Sensation here that that's that was kind of like where this part of the of your story uh, picked up, and I feel like you, you've got a trilogy on your hands, right? <laughs> so you've got Razzle Dazzle, and then now Singular Sensation, which is is all through the 90s and like pre-Rent and post-Rent or everything that's post-Rent, and so in the in the book jacket, it says that you were thinking you were going to end with Hamilton, but you're not even there. You know, you're not even there yet. So you've got, I guess, these moments in time, and you've been involved in theater. I want to go back, we will go back in a second to what got you involved in theater. But in in your timeline, in your history of what you've cared about in your career, I feel like the 80s, sort of like there was the AIDS crisis in the 80s. Rent had... You know, Rent sort of changed things in the 90s. Hamilton has now changed things. Like, there's just been these major, major milestones, right, that have just flipped Broadway on its head and brought a new audience that didn't previously exist. Am I off base?
0: No, I mean, that was kind of the, the whole idea for Singular Sensation, the new book, was I thought, okay, I lived... I lived... I, I came to New York in 1985, Uh, So I saw all the Andrew Lloyd Webber, Cameron McIntosh shows, Cats, Les Miserables, Phantom of the Opera. I started covering Broadway in 1989, so I saw Miss Saigon 1991 or 90, I think it opened. And they really dominated Broadway then. I mean, it was the British. It was Cameron and Andrew. And those shows Mm -hmm. were enormous. I mean, no one had seen the kind of ticket sales that those shows did. And those shows really helped push Broadway more and more into more mainstream popular culture in a way. Uh, and then I remember Sunset Boulevard, 90, 94, 95. And that show was, it was fascinating to me at the time. And it's why I opened the book with Sunset Boulevard, because that was the last of the big British shows. And at the time it opened, Andrew was at the height of his power. And everything on Broadway had to be big. You know, You had to have a chandelier. You had to have a helicopter. You had to have a barricade. In the case of Sunset Boulevard, you had to have Norma Desmond's eerie mansion that you know flew over the stage. Everything had to be lavish and expensive with special effects. Tell us all of the story. I want to interject real quick that it was flying in and out randomly. Or yeah, well, of, yeah, well, yeah. You know, in London, when Patty Patty, yeah, I interviewed yeah. Patty for the book, and Patty Lippon when she was doing London, she said for some reason the the frequency that the IBM computers that were specifically designed, IBM actually designed special computers for Sunset Boulevard. Their frequency was shared with um, cab drivers in London. Mm. So at the time, if the cab drivers would get a dispatch, the mansion might move to the right or to the <laughs> <laughs> so, You know, they couldn't control it. You know, <laughs> the technology uh, at its height back in those days. <laughs> anyway, but, go ahead. But the thing was, that I remember seeing Sunset Boulevard. I went to uh, I went to a preview, and not that I'm a prognosticator at all, but um, I remember just thinking wow, this is kind of an intimate story. It's really a triangle. It's Norma, Joe Gillis, and Max the butler. Just those three people with a little bit of um, the girlfriend who pops in and out from time to time. It's a small, it's a chamber piece. And I, I happen to think this score is one of Andrew's best. I, I, I love uh, As If We Never Said Goodbye. I think is a terrific musical theater song and The Perfect Year is beautiful too. But I remember just having this feeling that Man, for a show that is so intimate, this is one expensive, heavy production. But they were still living in that era where everything had to be big. The bigger, the better. You know, the more money you spent, let's fly the mansion. Now, if you think about it dramatically, there is no reason why a house should fly, unless you're doing The Wizard of Oz and the tornado comes and lifts it up. Mm -hmm. But why, dramatically, how does it make sense that Norma Desmond's mansion flies? It just, there's no point other than the fact that we have to have a big spectacular set. And I just remember the whole thing felt heavy. And then sure enough, as the saga of Sunset Boulevard plays out, as I show in my book, the whole thing got heavy. And Andrew had his fights with Patti Lapone and he fired her, and she sued him. He had his fight with Faye Dunaway, and she sued him. He had a fight with Glenn Close, who was the star of the show. And it just seemed to be riven by backstage feuding and fighting. And it became not the the, the publicity was not about the show anymore. It was about Andrew Lloyd Webber is, you know, alienating his leading ladies. Everybody's unhappy. And if you look closely at the ticket sales, once Glenn Close left the show on Broadway, they began to fall. And I remember thinking back then, I think. This has gone too far, this era of the British spectacle. It's just, it's not really working anymore. And I could see softness in the show. And indeed, um, at the end of the day, the Sunset Boulevard played in many productions around the world. And every single one of them went down without making any money. Hmm. Just—it just It had overreached itself. Now, I had no idea what was going to come next. It's not like I'm thinking back then, oh, something else will change. You know, you don't know. You don't know. But when I write a book like this and I begin to try to put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, you say, okay, so Sunset Boulevard wins the Tony Award in 1995. And its only competition that year is Smokey Joe's Cafe, which is a review, right? So Sunset wins score and book without even a a race. You know, there's no race. It just automatically gets it because Smokey Joe's Cafe doesn't have a book and it doesn't have, a, have an original score. And it wins Best Musical. So as I was kind of plot out this book, I thought, right, and I'd forgotten this. I said, so what, what, what was the show that won the Tony Award after Sunset Boulevard in 96? And it was Rent. And Andrew Lloyd Webber presented the Tony Award for Best Musical posthumously to Jonathan Larson for Rent. And then I thought, there's a change. Because when Andrew was at his height with Sunset Boulevard, and we were all writing about that, there was this kid that none of us had ever heard of before, writing this little show that nobody was paying attention to, that the New York Theater Workshop, that was this kind of nice little off-Broadway company that nobody was not on anybody's radar back in those days. And I remember I got a call from Richard Kornberg, who was the uh, publicist for the New York Theater Workshop. And he said, oh, Michael, I have some sad news. And I said, what, Richard? I was at the Daily News then as a reporter. He said, Jonathan Larson died last night. And I said, well, who's Jonathan Larson? I said, well, he wrote the show called Rent. And I said, Richard, what is that? I've never heard of this show. (laughs) Well, it's this new musical we're doing down here at the New York Theater Workshop. And I said, listen, Richard, I'm sorry the poor kid died, but I mean, no one knows who he is. So, you know, I think I gave you about one inch know, Isn't it sad that this young, struggling artist wrote a show and he died last night? And that was it. But what we didn't know was that Jonathan Larson, had, he had cracked it all. Because what he did was, he looked at all those Andrew Lloyd Webber shows, which, some of which he admired, by the way, especially Jesus Christ Superstar, which had a profound influence on him. But he said, you know what, this musical theater is not for someone my age You know, all these shows are set in fantasy worlds. Paris Opera House of the 19th century, you know, Vietnam, that was a long time ago. Les Miserables, 1848 Revolution, Norma Desmond in her mansion in 1920s Hollywood. You know, Cats, I I couldn't tell you where Cats was set. I know it's like a tire smoke, but it's set somewhere. And Jonathan said, these shows, they're not what I am living in my life right now. And he wrote Rent, which was a show that one was young, one was contemporary, one was happening right here and now, dealing with those issues such as gentrification and AIDS and poverty and the struggle of young artists. And he was writing in a new vernacular, which combined early hip-hop, there's a little bit of that in there, Rock music, although I would always argue that Jonathan wrote musical theater songs very well disguised as rock songs because the score to Rent is fundamentally a musical theater score. And it cost $100,000 to produce at the New York Theater Workshop. Which is nothing. Which is nothing. And then when that show exploded, that to me was, that's how the book begins. You start with the end of the Andrew Lloyd Webber era. It gets so big, yet it implodes. What comes next? Boom. This kid you've never heard of, an American, by the way, it's no longer British. Broadway is no longer dominated by the British. It's an American kid who writes the show that is contemporary, that is young, that is current. And then you layer onto that, the awful, awful tragedy that, you know, the night before his dress rehearsal, when he was being interviewed by the New York Times, which for him was a huge thrill because he'd grown up reading the New York Times. He couldn't believe that the New York Times was interviewing him. And when that interview was over, uh, he went back to his, uh, his apartment, um, 408 Greenwich Street, not too far from where I live. And, uh, you know, he put the tea kettle on and he dropped dead of, a, of an aneurysm. And he never mm. to see what rent achieved. But that's, a, but that's a shift. That's a change. And, you know, that's how the whole book begins. Because then after rent, the British are gone and the Americans are back in business on Broadway.
1: Well, it, it's, I mean, we'll get to the end of the book I guess at the end of the interview, like because this this whole timeline, it's it's That's such a fascinating story to me, um, because you've got people like Lin Manuel who have claimed to see have seen Rent, you know, over thirty times on stage, which influenced who he is, and then like Tom Kitt came out of that influence, and there's all these modern people and speaking Body to, it? yeah, yeah, and you've got all these these shows now, and I want I don't want I don't want to get into this yet. But I want to tease this, that you've got, you know, Percy Jackson and your Beetlejuices and your Be More Chills and these things that are trying to do well and are skewing towards an even younger audience. But now they're having the problem of catering to the audience who doesn't have the disposable income to support them on Broadway. But think about that. File that away. I want to get back to you. What got you into theater? Where did you
0: grow up? Well, I grew up in uh, Geneseo, New York, a small town outside of Rochester, and um, I was um, I was eh, not really a theater kid. I have to say, uh, I was more of a I was a bookish kid. I loved um, I loved reading uh, Agatha Christie mysteries and Ian Fleming James Bond books. And to this day, you know, I've been, uh, I guess I'm a writer because I have a couple of books under my belt. And I've been writing for for my living for a long time. But I, whenever I teach a class about writing, I say, you know, the best two writers you can read to learn how to write are Agatha Christie and Ian Fleming, because they drive the narrative. You know, they just they make you want to turn each page. What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? You know, there's not a lot of fuss. There's not a lot of fancy descriptions of things here and there. It's just driving dialogue and driving narrative. Mm-hmm. So I always say I learned how to write by reading Agatha Christie and Ian Fleming. You know, they're considered popular writers so, you know, the snooty people would look down their noses on them. But I'm telling you, as a kid, they were the big discovery for me. I mean, I spent hours in my uh, in my bedroom reading through everything Agatha Christie wrote and everything Ian Fleming wrote. Loved it. But I never set out to be a writer uh, and didn't really set out to be in the theater at all. I mean, I went to Columbia as a history major and I was going to be a lawyer. And then um, one summer, I um, I wanted to stay in New York. And my father said, okay, but you know, you're know, you going to have to help shoulder the cost of paying for the dormitory for the summer. We pay it for you know the semester when you're there, but if you want to stay in the summer, you got to help figure out a way to, to pay for it. So I went to the, uh, back in those days, you had the career services or the, I can't remember what it was called. And there was a little thing on the billboard that said, um, you know, wanted uh, position in a Broadway producer office, Elizabeth I. McCann. I mean, I knew a little bit about the theater. You know, being here in New York, I had some friends in the theater. Dan Futterman was a friend of mine at college who went on to write Capote and uh, had a good career in theater and movies and television. So I was kind of around it in a little bit. Um, but I thought, well, you know, this sounds kind of fun. Broadway producer working in an office there. So I went and I got the job with uh, Liz McCann, who's since become a you know dear dear friend of mine. Although to this day, she says she has no memory that I ever worked for her that summer of 1987. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I give speeches now and Luke is there and I said, Elizabeth McCann gave me my start in the theater. She said, Jesus Christ, don't say that. People are going to hate me because I got you started. But I was, I was, um, I may have told this, I don't think you were on a, a call when I told the story, so I'll tell it to you. Um, but it really began my theatrical career, so to speak. So my one or two days on the job, Liz is working on this show that's about to open on Broadway. That's brought in from England from the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I go to the office and she's there. She said, Kid, she always called me Kid, Kid, this goddamn actor in this show, we put him in this apartment and he's complaining that the air conditioning unit doesn't work. So go over there and fix it. I was like, Okay. okay. Excuse me. I'm, I'm, a history major at Columbia and don't know much about uh, air conditioning or plumbing, but said, yeah, just go fix it. He's a pain in the ass. I remember she said, it's a pain in the ass. Okay. So I got to leave the office there, 42nd street and ninth Avenue. I thought, well, I got to fix an air conditioning unit. How do I fix an air conditioning unit? So I stopped at a black, there was a black and Decker hardware store. <laughs> it was back then, and I bought a screwdriver. So I, I mean, I sort of look, know what I'm doing here, you know? So I go to this, and I have to say, it was kind of a. They they did not let's say they did not put the actors in the best accommodations back in those days in the nineteen eighties. It was a slightly kind of a sleazy, I don't know, apartment quasi homeless shelter where they put them. <laughs> <laughs> so I knock on the door, and this it opens very slowly, and this. Elong- I can only describe him as this elongated man. He was the, the tallest person i had ever seen in my life. He had this beard. And he had these like very sleepy eyes. Hit. Yes. I said, And I had my little screwdriver. I said, I- I'm from Liz McCann's office. I'm here to fix your air conditioning unit. He said, oh, it's beastly hot in here. Beastly hot. Come in. <laughs> so I go in and then I, I see the air conditioning unit over in over the window. And I walk by a bed, and I see this very attractive, I must say, female calf leg sticking out from under the covers of this guy's bed. And he's going, it's beastly hot in here. And then just covers go up from over the head of this blonde girl, and she looks up. She's, oh, it's so hot in here. It's so hot in here. It's so hot. And the covers go back. What is, these people are bonkers, right? What am I going to do? So I go over to the air conditioning unit, and I... I put the screwdriver in, and I just started, like, moving it around, and the air conditioning unit started. It went on. Remember, they used to go, and, oh, thank you, thank you. It's so beastly hot. Oh, it's so hot. It's so hot in here. Beastly hot. Goodbye. I get out of there. Well, that elongated actor was one Alan Rickman, <laughs> <who was playing laughs> on Broadway, <laughs> maybe he's on dangereuse. And the girl in the bed was one B.D. Edney, who was the ingenue in the show. And apparently, you and Alan were having a jolly old time back in the day. And so that was my uh, entree into the theater world. And, uh, <laughs> I figured if I could fix, if I could fix the air, con- air conditioning unit for Alan Rickman, I could probably fix somebody's play. And that's why I became a critic, I guess. Well, right, a screwdriver, not a pen.
1: So the 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 foray into being a critic, uh, I I feel like that is, I mean, a fun job and like one of the best jobs and one of the worst jobs because you've got to say things. I guess you can't be worried about it, what people think of you, or maybe you do, and it's just constant like internal turmoil and anxiety. But like as someone who who is like for people pleasers. You can't. I guess you can you be a people pleaser and be a critic, or do you word things like you've got your you know your reputations of like people like uh, a bit the Ben Brantley, right? Who's just like oh, no matter what he says, it's all going to be trash. Yeah. But there have been critics, especially like you outline some of the stories in your book, critics who have helped change. They've seen review, given reviews of out of towns or whatnot, and helped change the course of things to make them that much better.
0: Yeah, you know, I was I I developed this kind of. Weird thing that hadn't existed before. I was never a critic in the traditional sense of Ben Brownlee because I was a columnist. So I was a reporter at the same time I was getting my opinion out there. So, and I never wanted to be a critic in the traditional sense because I thought that would be boring just to go night after night to the theater and then go home and write book reports was just not interesting to me. What was more fun for me was getting to know theater people and hanging out with them, collecting the gossip, putting the gossip together, and then saying, okay, all right, I've got all this great dirt on Spider-Man, Turn Off the Dark, the Julie Taymor debacle, the mm-hmm. final And then I can kind of weave that into a kind of critical assessment of the show so I could have the one-two punch, all right? I can tell you the show sucks, and now here's all that juicy backstage gossip about how bad things are. So that was kind of the formula that I created. But it was too much fun for me to hang out with theater people uh, as opposed to being just a traditional critic who, as I say, just goes to the theater and writes little book reports after. So I kind of, I guess, you know, in some ways I changed the f- the formula and I don't think anyone else has done it since, the kind of critic columnist at the same time. But it wasn't, it wasn't anything that I invented. I mean, that was the way, if you go back, and I did when I first got my job at the Daily News as a Broadway columnist. I went back and I read all the great Broadway columnists of the past, Walter Winchell and Dorothy Kilgallen, Alexander Wolcott, all these Louis Funk, all these great guys. And they had the same kind of thing. They You could tell where they stood on a show. If they loved it, they were promoting it in ways. If they hated it, they were dishing the dirt on it. And I thought that's a, that's a kind of a form that's been lost that was very big in the newspapers of the 20s, 30s, 40s, going into the 50s. And so I just kind of stole from those people and made it my own kind of a thing. So I was the, the hybrid of the uh, gossip columnist and the critic at the same time.
1: So in, in the book, you've got so many quotes and stories, like uh, firsthand accounts and stories from people who were there. I, I mean, how, do you, how did you continue to dish secrets and do your job in that respect while can, you know, now 20 plus years later, still being great friends with these people who who I have assumed you've t- you've
0: put some negative things out about. Yeah, you know, I think the way I always approached things was uh, I, I was never duplicitous. So when I called people, I would say, look, here's what I know. Okay. I heard this. I heard that. This I have confirmed and um, you can talk to me and we can massage things and you can give me a quote and you can give me your perspective. Uh, And that will be reflected fairly in my column. And I always told people, I said, but, you know, if you give me a no comment, a no comment from my perspective is a license to kill because I have the goods. And if you don't want to talk about it, I'm just going to fire away and you have no defense. Whereas if you talk to me and give me an interview, then I can hear your perspective and maybe things that I think are exactly right, you have a different take on them and I have to reconsider that. And so things can be moderated and we can come to some kind of compromise about what a column is going to be as opposed to just a hit job. And I do think over the years that most of the people I've dealt with in theater felt that I I was always fair. I was never one of the reporters and there have been some some very famous ones who are still around, by the way, who, who would do the old bait and switch. Hey, I'm calling about this, but then they would actually write about something else and they take your quote out of context and you'd look like an idiot the next day because you thought you were talking about one thing and they were using it for something else. I never, ever played that game. So I think over the years, as tough as I could be, people thought, all right, at least I'm going to get a fair shake with him. At least I'll have a hearing with him. He will hear me out and he will reflect my point of view, my perspective, in his, in his column. And it, it's kind of funny, I mean, a lot of the people that I really roasted in my column became great sources for my books and uh, people that to this day I'm, I'm, I'm still friendly with. But I think it was just a matter of laying your cards on the table and say, hey, this is what I know. I'm a good reporter, I know what's going on. But what I don't know is your perspective of it. I haven't heard your side of things. So I'm gonna write this column, whether you talk to me or not, but if you talk to me, your perspective will be put into that column. And I think that kind of trust that people had in me, knowing that I wasn't going to screw them, and I was, always, I was always honest. I said, this is what I know, and this is the column I am going to write. Now let's talk about it, and let's figure out what you want to say in the context of what I'm going to write. And sometimes they tell you things you didn't know, and that has to shift your point of view, because I'm not there. I'm just just gathering the information. I'm not in the room where people are having a fight or somebody storms off. I'm just hearing this secondhand. So I I would rather have the eyewitness account of what happened. So when I set out to write, I mean, Razzle Dazzle, my first book was different because a lot of the people were dead. So I was relying on people's memories of people who are no longer with us and a lot of research in old newspaper articles and books and magazines to trying to piece that together. But with singular sensation, most of the people I'm writing about are alive. But because of my relationships with them, and I was determined, I said, this book is not going to be a collection of my columns, and it's not going to be a memoir. It's not going to be Michael Riedel's take on the 1990s. I went back and I interviewed everybody who was involved in all the shows and the events that I covered. And I said to them, I said, I want you to tell me what happened what you were thinking at the time. Don't project ahead. Don't say, we know the show is going to be a hit because you didn't. You know, we knew we were going to have trouble with this because you weren't sure. I just want you to tell me, what was that 1st the first time you read that script? How did? What was the impact it had on you? That first dress rehearsal, what was that like? The first time you put The Lion King up in front of, of 1,800 people who paid for their tickets at the Orpheum Theater in Minneapolis, what was that experience like? Take me back to those moments because, you know, in in a book like Singular Sensation, we know Rent's a hit, okay? We know Chicago's going to be a hit. We know The Lion King's going to be a hit. But Jonathan Larson, who did Rent, Franny Barry Weisler, who produced Chicago, and Disney that did The Lion King, at that time, they did not know that those shows were going to succeed. They did not know. So I wanted to capture that sense of what do we have and is it going to work? And the only way I know how to do that is to go back and interview those people and say, don't tell me what your life is like now with your money and your success. Tell me what your life was like back then and the struggles you had to get that show on. And as you know, Alan, every show is a struggle to get on. Absolutely.
1: I... I enjoy the spotlight that you shine on on the production side of everything because a lot especially even in this podcast you know the focus a lot of times is on the the celebrity the the front the front end the glitzy actor who steps into the role after you know the audience doesn't know it may have you know been this close to never getting funding or the 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 behind the scenes feuds how many people how many kids these days know about the Andrew Lloyd Webber Patty LaFone feud because that was you know they're they're only 14 or 15 years old right now or anything along those lines there's so much that goes into the production and the formation and just who holds the rights to a story and the song and the music and you know there's all these different angles to everything And I I absolutely love how how that's that's the focus. It's the production. It's like you're outlining Broadway as a whole production. I mean, it is the industry of Broadway. It's the show business. You know, it's business of show business. But um, the way that one thing influences the next, which influences the people who make the next thing, which influences the young fans that grow up and create the next generation, just... I mean, listening to you talk here, too, it's very obvious that you're a very good storyteller. You know, you, you, <laughs> you, you pause, you make me lean in, you get my well, attention, and then you keep
0: going. Well, I'll tell you this. You, don't want, you want to know uh, how, how you learn how to tell stories? Read the uh, short stories of Somerset Maugham, one of my favorite writers. A great writer, and he just, he just knows how to build a story. And then he gives you that little kind of twist at the end that is unexpected. But that's the great thing about writing about Broadway, because everything is unexpected. If I had said to you, "Okay, I've got this idea, Alan, for a musical. I'm going to take this one thousand page novel that was written in the um, 19th century. And by the way, it's in French. (laughs) I'm going to make it into a musical. You'd be thinking, well, you're insane. Well, that idea was Les Miserables, which has grossed $7 billion around the world. It is always, and the great thing about covering theater, it's always the unexpected. All right? Everything that they say that looks good on paper. Hey, we have got the rights to Spider-Man, the biggest franchise movie, Marvel Comics or DC, whatever it is, in the world. We got Bono and the Edge writing the score. We got Julie Taymor directing it. Cannot miss. Cannot miss. It's a total and complete disaster. But then you take Disney in 1997. Disney has Beauty and the Beast on Broadway that nobody liked. And everyone's thinking Disney is like, oh, my God, the theme park has arrived on Broadway. It's the end of the musical theater as we know it. This company has Bigfooted itself on Broadway. They're going to do shows that are you know, better off on a cruise ship. This is what we're going to have to live with on Broadway. And they say, well, you know what, we're gonna hire Julie Taymor to direct The Lion King. And then if you're me, you're thinking, as I did think, wait a minute, this makes no sense. All right, this family-friendly company, Disney, producing these theme park shows, is hiring this brilliant avant-garde director whose stuff is interesting but weird. I mean, you know, Juan Darion, a carnival mass, or as Julie would say, Juan Darion. <laughs> a carnival mass you think uh, this is not a this is not a show for families I'm telling you you know and that I remember seeing Juan de Grian, a carnival mass and like a woman is holding this lion cub puppet and she's breastfeeding it and i you know, not a family friendly show going on here and you thought there is no way these two these two entities Julie Taymor and Disney can possibly work it's just, it does not make any sense and so I went out to uh, the Orpheum Theater in Minneapolis to see an early uh, preview of The Lion King. I was trying out of town. And I kid you not, I mean, I sat there with my arms crossed and I was like, all right, this is going to be a total and complete disaster. And I cannot wait. I cannot wait to destroy this thing. And then all of a sudden, you know, you hear C.D. LaLoca singing, ah, ba and this papier mache Sun comes rising up. And then this cougar puppet with a woman manipulating it comes out. <laughs> and then these giraffe puppets. I mean, the people were in the puppets of the giraffes. They come loping out. And I was saying, thinking, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now, I'm confused here because what I'm seeing is unbelievably beautiful. And it's not what I expected in any way. And by the end of that opening number, the circle of life, I remember looking up and I felt something brush up against me because I was on the aisle and I looked up and this life-size elephant puppet was walking by. By the end of that number, there was pandemonium, pandemonium in the theater. And everybody, they were standing on their seats, cheering and screaming and applauding. And to my dismay as a tough old critic, I found myself standing on my seat, cheering and applauding because it was so completely unexpected. And, you know, that is fundamentally What theater does that very very little else can do is Hal Prince once said to me years ago, he said, you know, Michael, in our business, the theater business, you can't give people what they want. You have to give them what they couldn't even have imagined. And all of the shows that I chronicle in this book, Rent, Chicago, The Lion King, Angels in America, The Producers, it's not something that people wanted there was no formula for these shows. It just gave people something that they didn't even know that they wanted, that they didn't even know could exist. And then they see it and they love it. And that really can only happen in the theater. Well, that
1: I think has the, has the tendency to go either way. You're obviously talking about the things that succeeded, but I'm sure there could be multiple books written on things that tried to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and never made it,
0: but, no risk, no reward. So, well, that's what that's what Michael that's what Michael Eisner said when there was a moment during the Lion King, which I put in the book, where they did a workshop of Julie's uh, puppetry, and uh, Michael Eisner and all the people who came in from uh, California to see it, they were like, "Well, you know, what is this? We don't get it." I mean, there were these things on the head. You look at the actor's face. You look at the thing on the head, and it was done in a rehearsal room with you know, not wasn't lit. The costumes weren't really painted. And they were like, this is this is ridiculous. I mean, this is not going to work. And they were about to pull the plug on the show, but it was Peter Schneider and Tom Schumacher, the producers of The Lion King, who said uh, to Julie, they said, you know, Julie, we failed you. We we did not present your designs in the right way. We have to get this back in front of Michael Eisner. And so they redid another workshop just for Michael Eisner at the Palace Theater. And now you had Don Holder's brilliant lighting. Julie had finished all the designs of the puppetry. And they did a series of different kind of puppets. And, you know, the first series was like, they looked like they were from cats, you know, tights and fur and this kind of stuff. And then Julie did a kind of a hybrid of her original vision and the, the kind of furry thing. And then the last one she did was her vision of her kind of unique puppetry. And Michael Eisner sat there and he looked at it and he said, you know what? The bigger the risk, the bigger the reward. Let's go with your vision, Julie. And that reward turned out to be a show that has grossed $9 billion around the world. That's insane. That's insane. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean,
1: I think this is a really good segue to go back to the question I teased earlier is, you know, what's what's coming next then? What's the new generation? And why do you think, well, there's things that I've seen tried that didn't quite work, like Network with Bryan Cranston had the whole, like, tv on film but live outside the theater and that was cool but didn't quite work the way that i think the director originally intended it to and you've got uh things like like be more chill and you know beetlejuice of course pushed the limit but then it it hit, and then it didn't, then it, hit, then it did again, and then there's the whole, like, behind the scenes, oh God, I would love to know what you know <laughs> about Music Man versus Beetlejuice. But
0: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, listen, I feel that I have pretty much done my time on Broadway. I mean, uh, I wrote two books about it, and I've lived through it for 30 years, and uh, uh, I, I don't want to be one of those old critics that I knew who used to cling on to the job, even though the the world was changing and tastes were changing, and they couldn't get with it. And I realized, for me, where I was really out of touch was was Hamilton. I mean, no secret that I was not a big fan of Hamilton. To me, it was like a you know a fifth grade um, fifth grade uh, history lesson uh, in very obvious ways about the founding fathers, and you know it was all done in this rhyme, rhyme, rhyme. This then, the other thing, and you know I come from the world of Larry Hart and Stephen Sondheim, where the rhymes are really, really clever and then hamilton's like my name is aaron burr sir people go oh my god it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's not for me it's just not for me and hamilton wasn't for me but you have to recognize that listen my niece and my nephew and they're 10 and 12 they love hamilton uh and i recognize that hamilton is hugely popular but i can't fake it and i do know some of the uh Aging critics at the time were not as crazy about Hamilton as they would lead you to believe in their reviews, but they did not want to seem out of touch and that they weren't with it because they didn't like Hamilton. So um, I kind of think I don't, I'm not the best person to ask as what's going to come next. My tastes are my tastes and they're not going to change very much. Um, Frankly, most of the new musicals I see, um, well, when there was a Broadway, I wasn't that interested in. I think Evo Van Hoover Vacuum Cleaner, whatever his name is there, <laughs> uh, is, is overrated. Uh, I thought Network was not good uh, because he fundamentally does not understand the component of that story that makes it compelling, which is, it's really not about Howard Beale, the guy who goes crazy. It's really about, um, in the movie, William Holden and how his life is really upended by everything and how his marriage is destroyed because in the movie he falls in love with Faye Dunaway. And Howard Beale is, um, is the supporting player when the movie is really about the William Holden character. Mm-hmm. And Ivo van Hoover, van Hoover uh, turned it into this whole Howard Beale thing. But Howard Beale doesn't get you anywhere because Howard Beale just goes crazy. And that's the end of it. He goes crazy. Whereas in Network, the Paddy Chayefsky script, it's really about William Holden. A man who does not know he's having a midlife crisis until he sees his friend crack up, and then he has his own particular kind of crisis. And that's where the meat and that's where the heart of the story really is. And you can tack on all the bells and whistles with your videos and your cameras and all that stuff that Eva von Hova does. But he's failed to understand the fundamental premise of the story, which it's not about Howard Beale. It's about Howard Beale's producer. And that's what really moves you in the movie. And that was missing from, from, uh, from this production network. So I can't really go down that path with those avant-garde directors. And I saw his, uh, The Crucible. And I remember he had the girls flying at one point. I said, well, this defeats the whole point of the play because there's no such thing as witches. They don't exist. But these crazy people in the community believe they do exist. But if you start having the girls levitate and fly, then you're saying, well, the witches do exist then you have to say, all right, the people in the community are right. They are witches, and they should be killed. So it just kind of goes against the whole point of it, with all these bells and whistles that he does.
1: So Network, Crucible, uh, you mentioned Spider-Man, just this multi, multi, multi-million dollar tragedy and missed opportunity. Um, Personal opinion on Hamilton aside, then, I I guess it sounds to me like you're saying that the future of Broadway, that the change has to be about... There still has to be story. There still has to be heart. There still has to be char- strong characters in Drive, right? Because I think where a lot of producers now, judging from what you've just said, is that some people now are trying to cover up a lack of a story with a lot of spectacular, a lot of it, spectacle, a lot of
0: technology. You know, I mean, if you if you analyze all the shows that have endured, the really great ones, you will see that they're The fundamental level, when you scrape everything away, there is some kind of story that touches an audience. So I always would say the Phantom of the Opera, yeah, people say, oh, my God, it's got the chandelier, it's got all these special effects, it's got the boat that goes in, the candelabra that comes, and all those are beautiful, wonderful stagecraft. But at the end of the day, what makes the Phantom work is that you root for this man who's been so shunned by the world who has fallen in love for the very first time. And he's almost like a child because he's never known love before. He's never known what it is to be in love with somebody. And he loves Christine so much, he's willing to give up everything for her. And you begin with a man who's a murderer, but at the end of that show, every single woman in that audience is like, oh God, I wish I had someone like the Phantom in my life who loves me the way he loves Christine. (laughs) But but it's true, I mean, that was Andrew's genius. You know, Andrew, in in Razzle Dazzle, I interviewed Andrew, and I said, you know, you gotta tell me, how how did you hit on the idea of the Phantom of the Opera? Because in my mind, the Phantom of the Opera was Lon Chaney, and it was a horror movie. It was always a horror movie. And Andrew happened to pick up, he was walking down Fifth Avenue, and he happened to pick up, There used to be a bookstall on Fifth Avenue that I used to go to, And he just picked up for a dollar Gaston LaRue's The Phantom of the Opera. And he read the book. He had time to kill and he read it. And he did not see the horror. He saw the romance. Wow. And that's The Phantom is is not popular because it's a horror story. It's popular because it's a romantic story. Right? Yeah. So you um, you take Wicked. Wicked has a lot of special effects in it. Right? You know, I mean, they fly and they this and the big sets and all that. But what is it fundamentally about? It's about the girl who everybody makes fun of. About being bullied. It's about the girl who's, before we even had a, probably the terms bully and all that kind of stuff. It's about the girl who's different. She's different. And nobody accepts her. And then the genius of Wicked is that the girl who is popular they do have a kind of relationship. The unpopular girl and the popular girl do have a bond in some way, and that drives the show. So you have these kind of fundamental storytelling bits that if you lose sight of them, I don't care you know how much money you spend on your production values, without that thing that just grabs an audience and makes them want to care about the characters, you're not going to have anything ultimately. I mean, why does the producers work? The, movie, the movie's great, but the movie's, the movie's great in a cult kind of way. Now, why did it work as a Broadway show? Because it is a love story. It's a heterosexual love story. Max Bialystok and Leo Bloom, they fall in love with each other during the course of the show. And how does Mel Brooks and Tom Bean's producers end? They literally walk off arm-in-arm arm into the sunset, showing all the new shows they're going to do together. <laughs> that's that i mean these are simple things but they're hard to they're hard to get across in a in a compelling way but without that without that heart without that soul without that fundamental storytelling everything else is immaterial
1: you you have such an inane, innate sense for knowing what what will make something work and obviously what does not and obviously can write you can tell a story what is the next phase for you? Have you ever thought about starting your own script and producing your own show? Or are you getting more into this author realm of life?
0: Well, I mean, the phase for me now is, you know, I've, I've become a radio host. I host the morning radio show uh, on 710WOR, and uh, I can't say the paycheck is paycheck's pretty good, so I'm, <laughs> uh, I'm not saying no to that for a while. I don't know. I mean, I found, to be honest with you... Um, when I set out to write my first book, Razzle Dazzle, I had, I had a lot of doubts about my ability to write it because as a writer, I was a columnist. So I was a sprinter, you know, I'm a newspaper man. So it's like, Oh my God, where's Riedel's column? It's four o'clock. Where's your column? And I was like, uh, well, I haven't really gotten around to it yet. Cause you know, I've been fooling around all day. And then you sort of focus for a second. And then you are right, it out, knock it out. It this thing. Send it off. It's done. 700 words, a thousand words, easy, done. So when I, Got the uh, contract to write razzle-dazzle. And I thought, oh, my God. This is actually this is a book, which means it's longer than a 700-word column that I write every Friday. And how do, I, how do I do that? So I had this kind of panic. I thought, I don't really know if I'm capable of writing a book. I mean, a book seems like a lot of work. And I couldn't figure out how to get into it and how to do it. And then I called my old friend, Martin Gottfried. Some of your listeners may know him. He wrote some wonderful books, a great book, a coffee table book, a book called Broadway Musicals. He wrote a wonderful biography of Bob Fosse. And he was a good friend of mine. And I remember saying, I said, Martin, you know, listen, I'm a newspaper man. I mean, I could knock out a thousand words on my lamppost if you needed it, and with no sweat. But now this is a book. I mean, it's like a thing. It's got a lot of pages, a lot of stuff in there. Well, How do I, how do I, how do I write this kind of stuff? And he said, don't even think about writing. He said, you have to do the research. You have to interview everybody. You have to read all the old newspaper clips. You have to read a whole bunch of old books you've never even heard of before. Don't even think about doing the writing until you've done the research. And once you do the research, in the course of doing the research, you're going to find your narrative in your book. And he was absolutely right. As I began to interview people for Razzle Dazzle, and they would tell me these stories stories that you know nobody knew stories that had been lost in time i thought that's amazing that's interesting and then you know this person would tell you about this moment and then you'd interview someone else and they'd say well yeah that happened but this also happened and then the joy of a book is you have all these pieces of a puzzle that it's up to you to put together so at the end of the day it all comes together in one click, and you think that's the story I was trying to tell. But you can only do that with the research. I imagine and, you uh, have
1: you have a wall in your in your apartment somewhere that looks like a conspiracy theorist—the wall with a bunch of pictures
0: and clippings and you know the pushpins with strings all over the place. No, that's not how I work. I've, somehow I keep it all together in my head. But I my apartment when I'm writing, my apartment is a total mess because I, I have transcripts from all the interviews I've done with people. And all the books and articles I've read. So when I'm focusing on a chapter, uh, I will have laid out all the transcripts of all the characters in the chapter, which have all been marked up because I've read them and I've circled things. Oh, this is great. This is a story. This is a quote. But then I got the magazine that came out in you know, 1976 from New York Magazine that covered the show I want to use. Then I have this old clip here from the New York Times that I found and this old clip from the New York Post. And it's the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. And then you sort of think, okay, I've got all this stuff in my mind. And so it's all right here around me. Because I write on the floor. I write, I'm write. i sitting on my coffee table on the floor as I am now. And it's like a semi-circle of material. And then I just begin to say, ah, I remember that is there and that is there. And then you start writing. And it does, it, in a weird way, it kind of works. And you think, oh, yeah, this links up with that. This leads into that. This moves the story along here. Oh, now I see where I'm gonna go. I know I'm gonna end this chapter, but I need to build it up in such a way that the reader does not quite know where it's gonna go until I get there. And um, to me, that's I mean, you know, that's the joy of uh that's the joy of the research and the writing. But uh I will tell you it's exhausting. I mean, I can I'm I'm a pretty fast writer, but I'm good for about when I'm in the midst of a book, I'm good for about four or five hours. Straight work. I mean, when I sit down to write, if I sit down at noon to write, I can go to four or five o'clock, with all that stuff going on in my mind and making sense of it. And then you just hit a certain point, and you think, ah, that's right, it clicks, and then you're exhausted. And then what about a big what about, lap and go to bed? <laughs> what
1: about um, TV and film? Because the the way that you've laid this out, it's a very it's a very linear story in the way that it's told. And, and a lot of things happened and you circle back and happen in parallel, those things you come back to. But what about turning this into like a TV series or a movie about, you know, the 80s of Broadway, the 90s of Broadway, the today of Broadway?
0: Well, I mean, I, you know, I, have a, I had a very good, I have a very good editor, Simon & Schuster, uh, Ben Lunan. And when I set out to write my first book, I said, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you give me some advice? And he said, write scenes. Think of everything as a scene. I thought, that's good. Because, you know, I come from the theater world, so I know what scenes are. Don't explain things. Just write a scene. And you know, an early mistake I made when I was writing my first book, I would write a really good scene, but then I would say, and then it means this. In the context of everything, it amounts to this. And Ben, a great editor, would take his red pen and say, we don't, we don't care what you think it's going to mean. Let the reader... Set the scene, and the reader can say, oh yeah, I can see what it's going to mean. You don't have to explain everything. So my writing has gotten better, I think, with his editing, because I just pare everything down. Set the scene, set the scene, set the scene. Um, I'm flattered by the fact that uh, my book had been optioned, Razzle Dazzle was optioned, uh, to be made into a TV series. And Doug McGrath, who wrote uh, Beautiful, the Carol King musical, did a very fine uh, pilot episode for it, a script that he did, But um, the problem was, when he did that and when it was optioned, it was kind of right after, this is back in 2015, when Smash had been on NBC, and Smash was a failure. So there was a sense that uh, shows about theater are not going to work. So that never went anywhere. Um, Since then, I do have some offers uh, for Razzle Dazzle to be made into a TV series again. So uh, when I can when the, when i've signed the uh, the contracts i'll let you know but i will tell you this though the people who are interested in turning that book into a series are 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 you know first class top people and they're much they're much better at that stuff than i am I mean, i'm just you know i write columns and i write books i'm not a i'm not a screenwriter i'm not a teleplay writer but um i've asked my agent to put into the contract that i can be around so I can see how they do it so I can learn something new so that this old dog might have one or two more tricks left (laughs) and I would not be surprised perhaps if things come together that I might try my hand at writing my own episode of a chapter from my own book at some point and then we'll see what happens who knows I would love to see that. So let's put that let's put that
1: out in the universe. All right. So we'll wrap up here with the three standard closing questions that I ask everyone on the podcast. The first one is, "What motivates you?"
0: Money. Fair enough. <laughs> I am. I am not. I was never, I was never a writer who was like, "Oh, I want to be a writer." I don't write a word unless I'm paid for it. <laughs> I I had to figure out a way to, I had no money in New York when I graduated from college, and I had to figure out a way to make a living. And I somehow was able to do it by writing. So what motivates me is they call me up and they say, oh, could you write an article about this? Could you write an article about that? I say, yeah, I could. How much do you pay? Here's my word count. And here's the amount I get paid for each word. For me, writing is, it's a joy and it's fun. But for me, it's a business because that's how prompt, you know, for many years of my life, I made my living. Mm
1: -hmm. So then the next question is, what advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now, starting out down a similar path?
0: Follow the money. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, do I I add on to that by changing that to follow the opportunity? But no, my, my, (laughs) my, I'm a capitalist. My fundamental belief is you can be an artist, you can be a writer, you can be an actor, you can be a painter, you can be a broadcaster, you can be this, you can be that. But until, until someone pays you for what you want to do, you are not a professional. You're an amateur. So if you love the arts, find a way to get paid for it. Because other than that, you're just going to be an amateur for the rest of your life. You're you're never a professional until you cash a check that somebody said, Whatever you did, that painting, that article, that bit of acting you did, that piece of music you wrote, it does not count until somebody says, I like it enough to pay for it. So Go for the money. (laughs) Okay, so
1: the final question then. And I think this might, well, maybe it'll be hard because you've seen a lot of shows. But the question is, if you can only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want,
0: what would you see? Uh, I would see... An endless loop of the best of theater talk with Michael Riedel. (laughs) 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 although sometimes late at night like norma desmond i do watch myself on old vhs tapes of the early days of theater talk that i used to host on pbs if i had to see one show over and over again i'd have to say it would probably be well can i give you two can i give you a play on a musical sure sure all right. If I were to give you a play, it would be Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which mm-hmm. I think is is the great American play. And uh, I had the good fortune to get to know Edward Albee pretty well. And uh, in fact, in my book Singular Sensation, I have a whole chapter on Edward's comeback when he was in the wilderness and he came back with a wonderful play, Three Tall Women. I, I loved that's Actually, that chapter on Edward uh, called Who's Afraid of Edward Albee is my favorite chapter in the book because I knew him well and I knew him when he was totally forgotten and cast aside. And I just saw his amazing comeback. Um, so that was the that's the chapter I enjoyed the most. And Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf was a play where and this is how I met Edward. I was a kid at the Kid of Columbia and he was teaching a class there. And I kind of fallen in love with this girl who wanted to be an actress and she was going to take this theater class with Edward Albee, who I'd never heard of before. And I thought, well, if she's going to take it, I'm going to take it, too, because I want to be around her. <clears throat> and I remember thinking, okay, well, Edward Albee's teaching this class and I have to do a monologue for him. You have to audition with a monologue. And I'm saying, hmm, I don't even know what a monologue is. So I went to the Barnes & Noble there at Columbia and I went to the drama section and they actually had a little thing of monologues. And I took this thing out. It was a Dylan Thomas monolog <clears throat> And um, I I read it. It made no sense to me whatsoever. But I did did read that Dylan Thomas was Welsh. So I thought, well, I mean, I didn't know what Welsh was, but I knew it was somewhere in England. So I I did an English accent like this when I read the thing. (laughs) So I go to the, you know, I'm walking on the stage and this guy comes out in a leather jacket, leather jacket, and this gunslinger, you know, 80s mustache comes out. Frankly, I was a little scared, to be honest with you. This guy's weird. And then I um, I read my little monologue in English. I said, And as we conclude the lecture for today, I will now draw on the chalkboard a line that will take you to the place you need to be. I remember Edward looking at me with a mustache, and he said, Do that again without the accent. So I did it without the accent, just like me. He said, okay, you're in the class. I said, well, thank you, Mr. Albee. I said, well, now I need to know who this guy is. So I went to the library. I went to the stacks at Columbia. Let me just go to the library. I said, all right, Edward Albee. Albee, Albee, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? I'm I'm 18 years old. And I take the thing out and I sat there on the floor and I started reading it. And I remember reading Jesus H. Christ. What a dump. Martha's first line. Mm -hmm. And I read that play. I sat there in the stacks of the Columbia Library and I read that play. And I thought, oh, my God, I have never read anything like this in my life. And then I took down A Delicate Balance and Tiny Alice and I read all those plays over the weekend. I thought that my life is going to be changed here. And wow. then every, I, you know, we became pretty good, pretty good friends over the years. So, so yeah, for me, uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? That was the uh, that would be the play I could see again and again and again. It's a brilliant, brilliant play, and he was a brilliant, brilliant man. As Terrence McNally says in my book, he was the the least theatrical theater person I've ever met. Edward did not care about the gossip, the whole politics of the theater. He was a pure artist. He wrote what he wanted to write. And if you liked it, fine. If you didn't, he didn't care. He just went his own way. And that I admire tremendously. And as per musical, I would have to go for My Fair Lady. I do think that's the perfect musical. Uh, I think somehow the Shaw play, Pygmalion, is a wonderful play, and Alan J. Lerner and Fritz Lowe, they captured the spirit of that, uh, of a man who thinks he cannot love, who is not interested in falling in love, for whom love means nothing. And then at the last moment, he realizes he has fallen in love. And that just touches the heart.
1: I love that answer. That is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> So obviously, if you're listening now, check the show notes, and I'll have a link for where to get "Singular Sensation: The Triumph of Broadway." And then, Michael, where else can we find you online?
0: Uh, well, you can listen to me on 710 WOR on the radio, on my podcast, Len Berman and Michael Riedel in the Morning." And uh, I'm not a social media person, so I don't do I don't tweet, I don't do Instagram, I don't do any of that stuff. I'm I'm too old for that nonsense, and I. <laughs> Sadly, I have too many friends who've gotten in trouble by tweeting things they should not have tweeted and uh, Instagramming things they should not have Instagrammed, so I, I, uh, I, I don't go down that path. But you can listen to me on 710WOR, Len Berman and Michael Riedel in the morning. Uh, you can check out our podcast, 710WOR.com slash Len and Michael.
1: And you can get more of me at thetheaterpodcast.com. I am on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Uh, please leave a rating and a review. This is edited by Matthew Hendershot. Thank you to Jukebox the Ghost for the intro and outro music. And Michael, thank you most of all to you. I, I just can't get over all these stories. There's people I know now in my career at this point that I've just never been able to sit down with them and and know where they came from because i'm just experiencing them in the current state like jack Vertel, for example oh
0: jack's right good friend
1: right like all over the book and i know him now because i've been working with him now in the last year year and a half no idea the history that you've exposed me to so anyway I need to end this episode because it's been going on, but it's so, it's just so good. Everybody, please get Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway. It is such a good book. Again, Michael, thank you, thank you very much. My pleasure, Alan. Anytime, thanks. Take a
0: deep breath, make the world a little colorful.